listening to Clary Vacation on Springfield's Talk 1041. Hey, everybody. It's Clarification. I'm your host, James Clary, joining you from another beautiful weekend in the Ozarks, along with Sarah Myers at the Dials on the Board. And we are continuing our Oktoberfest, talking about all things strange, esoteric, paranormal, if you will, just the weird, wacky things that happen on our planet that we don't know about. And today... We're going to talk about a subject. Now, I know some of you may be familiar with this topic. Uh, We're just going to call it Missing 411. Now, the gentleman who really created this whole topic of strangeness is a guy named David Politis. And if you are familiar with Politis and you know this story... Keep listening because we're going to go over a couple cases today that I think maybe he hasn't discussed very much. But Politis spent 20 years in law enforcement. And one thing that's left out of his bio very often, I think because he he tends to believe that it hurts his credibility a little bit, is that he was a Bigfoot researcher. So anyway, he's in a national park. And this, the whole topic has to do with missing people in national parks, which you say, well, that's not very interesting. It, when I tell you the details, you'll find it very interesting, creepy. It's uh, one of the strangest things I've ever covered. So anyway, he had noticed, Pilatus had noticed while he's in this park that two park rangers had been following him throughout the day. He just thought it was kind of odd, but he just said, oh, well. So later that uh, afternoon, early evening, he went back to his cabin. He hears a knock on the door. It's one of the park rangers. And Dave invites him in, and they have a long conversation. And the, the ranger said, Dave, we know who you are. We know your former law enforcement, that you're a good investigator. And there's things that we have seen, he speaking about himself and his partner, over the course of many, many years working in many different national parks that we think needs to be investigated. We've gone to our superiors and they slammed the door in our face. And what they were talking about were very specific missing persons cases. And anytime they tried to do follow-up on these certain cases, their superiors told them to stand down, Uh, There's nothing to see here. You can't even see the file. I mean, it was really odd. They just and the circumstances around these specific cases. That's what's really odd. So let's talk about not specifically the cases, but what these park rangers told Dave made them different. First of all, they were all almost all of them had a huge uh, press the press was all over these stories for seven to 10 days and then nothing. It seemed like it just completely died down. The park service won't give out any information, not just to the Rangers, but to anyone seeking information on these cases, they just say no comment. So after a week, there was no follow-up. Very often the uh, park services would 
not speak to any reporters after the seven to 10 days about these specific cases. Now, remember, the Park Service is a federal agency. It's a bureaucracy. And uh, Politis actually did several FOIA requests. And when he did his first FOIA request from the Park Service, he asked for a list of missing people that had gone missing in national parks. These are federal, U.S. federal parks. The agency said, uh, we don't have any list. Then he kept pestering them. An attorney for the Park Service called him and asked him why he wanted it, which, first of all, in FOIA, that is not to be a condition for releasing information. You, You don't have to explain why you want it. And even after he said, well, I'm a researcher, I'm an author, I'm doing research, he said, well, we didn't have it. So to this day, I mean, he went through, he's, I've seen interviews where he spends 30 minutes talking about his dealings with the Park Service. It's just amazing. They completely shut him down. Now, what makes these cases so different? What makes them so unique? I mean, to me, it's not like hard to imagine that a person gets lost in a national park like Yosemite or Crater Lake or Yellowstone. You know, these are massive areas. They're they're wilderness areas, rough terrain. And sure, people get attacked by bears, by cougars. They've get we know that people have been murdered by serial killers and the Appalachian Trail. It happens. But here's what makes these different. First of all, there were no people involved. There's no suspects. Very often, the people that went missing were in an area where we know there weren't any other people. For instance, there's one road in to a completely remote wilderness area, and there's nobody else there. There's no sign of any other person. Uh, There's no evidence of animal attack. So any case that comes across Politis's desk where it's a pot, even a remote possibility that they were attacked and killed by an animal. He doesn't, it's not part of the missing 411 because an animal attack is going to leave blood and bits of clothing and fur. Another odd thing that he found in these cases that when canines are brought out, they never find a scent. There's no scent found, which is very unusual. Very often when the person is found, if the body's found, they do an autopsy. The coroner cannot determine a cause of death. And so on many of these, they just say, well, natural causes or exposure, because they really don't know. There's no there's no gunshot, no strangulation marks, no stabbings, whatever. Here's one of the weirdest things that he's found in these cases is that in over 90 percent of these cases, immediately after the person was reported missing and the search begins, there are weather anomalies like a blizzard will happen. It's fair weather, 55 degrees. The person goes missing. All of a sudden there's a blizzard or massive thunderstorms which is just very strange to even think about how the weather could be involved. Uh, There's no suspects, as I mentioned. Uh, It's not voluntary. None of the people missing, like, you know, some people hike out in the woods with the intention of getting lost and committing suicide by, you know, dying in the forest alone. None of these people had any mental illness. Uh, Very often, if they're found, 
And less than half of the people are ever found in these cases, by the way. But if they are found, they're almost always missing clothing, specifically shoes and pants. In many cases, if the body's found, their pants will be folded neatly laid next to them, which is just bizarre. Or they'll be found barefoot and having walked 10 miles. I mean, it it doesn't make sense. They're often found in boulder fields. And I was talking to my girlfriend. She's like, what's a boulder field? Well, if you ever get out in the mountains, a boulder field is just an area where there's just massive numbers of boulders. They're almost, when the bodies are found, it's almost always near or in water. And almost all of these cases happen between, the disappearances happen between 4 and 5 p.m. or a little later which is just bizarre in itself. The ones that are found alive, and there are some that are found alive, they're found semi-conscious and they have no memory of what happened to them. They're reported to have had a low-grade fever. And more often than not, they're found in an area that had been searched numerous times before. There's one other criteria There seems to be two groups of people, either very smart people like many physicists, doctors, professors have gone missing, or they seem to be somewhat mentally challenged. Many autistic children or with Asperger's disease. And I might also add, nobody has ever been reported missing in this group who had a firearm and a geo tracker on their person. So... Uh, Just a little note, if you're going to go out in the woods and after you hear these stories in the next segment, you're going to want this carry a firearm and a geo tracking device because nobody's ever been reported missing who had those two things. When we come back, we're going to talk about specific cases in the missing 411 mystery. It's clarification. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Clarification. I'm your host, James Clary. We're talking about missing 411, these extremely unusual cases of people that go missing in public forest areas or in the national park system. Now, I do want to say that it's not just in the national park system, but the investigator, Polites, David Polites, noticed when he started he's gone through over 10,000 cases and he marks each one on a map with a pen and Sarah's going to put in the show notes these maps that show he's identified 52 areas these are clusters of where these disappearances happen I mean there's whole sections of the U.S. where there's been no odd disappearances none there's other places like Yosemite is one of the the main areas, uh, Crater Lake is another one. One of the one of really odd things, too, I forgot to mention this, that many times the places where the people go missing have kind of an esoteric name like Devil's Pass or, you know, Satan's Trail, something like that, which is just an aside, but it's just kind of odd. Let, let's get into some of these cases. The disappearance of Dennis Martin is one of the strangest. Now, this happened back in 1969. So Dennis Martin was a six-year-old who was born in 1962. 
And he disappeared on June 14, 1969. They were in the Great Smoky Mountains Park in Tennessee. Uh, Every Father's Day, Dennis and his siblings, along with his father and grandfather, went camping. This was a family tradition that they'd had for many years. So the Martins get to their campsite, and they are deep in the wilderness in the Smoky Mountains. And the kids are playing. They're in an area that's forested, but there's a clearing in their campsite that's approximately the size of a football field or a little bit smaller. So the kids are playing in this open area. Another family comes along and sees the children playing and they introduce themselves to Dennis say, hey, we have kids about the same age. Would you mind if we brought them over to play? And, and Dennis was like, well, yeah, of course. Not Dennis. Sorry, he's the kid. Dennis's father said, yeah, of course, bring him over. So this other family comes over and brings a couple kids. Now, all of the kids begin playing hide and seek in this clearing. Now, Dennis was the youngest of these children. He was only six. So Dennis's father was watching him specifically because he didn't want anything to happen to his kid. He had his eye trained on Dennis the whole time. So when it was time to hide, he watched Dennis run to the edge of this clearing and crouch down behind a bush. And so the hide-and-seek went on for several minutes, And at some point when nobody could find everyone, they said, all right, everybody come out. One of, you know, who was ever the seeker was saying, you know, Ali Ali income free, I think is what we used to say. And everybody came out, everyone except Dennis. Now, remember, Dennis's father had been watching him the whole time. He watched him go crouch behind this bush. Now, he couldn't see him because the bush covered him, but he would have seen him if he got up and ran somewhere and he didn't see anything. He just saw Dennis hide. Well, Dennis never came out. So his father runs over to the bush. There's no Dennis. His dad immediately. Now, remember, this is within a minute or two of Dennis hiding. His father runs down the only trail near where Dennis was, and he runs for almost two miles down this trail, screaming and shouting Dennis's name. Now, remember, this is a six-year-old. Six-year-old can certainly run, but they don't have any stamina, and they can't run that fast. If Dennis had just taken off down the trail, his father would have found him. If Dennis had run bushwhacking through the woods, they would have heard something. He would have cried out. If it was an animal that got him, or even a human, they would have heard something. I mean, they weren't that far away from him. So the whole, both families, the grandfather, the father, and the other parents, and all the kids begin a frantic search for Dennis. And it went on for, I don't know, I think 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, and I might add, you remember I told you that one of the criteria in these is weather anomalies? Almost immediately after he disappeared, it rained three inches in two hours. Do you realize how heavy rain that is? That's a deluge. And the rain literally washed out all the trails. So they, you know, it really hampered the search effort. But they went to the sheriff. The sheriff brought search and rescue teams. Eventually, this is one of the strangest aspects of the story, 
the Green Berets showed up. Now, if I'm sure you know, the Green Beret are a Army Special Forces group. These are the best of the best in the Army. And these Green Berets, to anyone's knowledge, weren't training in the area. They came to help in the search. Now, the military is, I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a case where the military is brought in to search for a missing person. I mean, sometimes the FBI gets involved that there's unusual circumstances. And I think they were involved in this particular case because there were unusual circumstances. So there was some footprints found in the area, but they were dismissed from the possibility of being Dennis's by park officials who said they'd been left by a Boy Scout. Uh, The footprints led to a stream where they disappeared and the tracks indicated that one foot was barefoot while the other was in an Oxford type shoe, which was the kind of shoe that Dennis was wearing. Uh, One of the park rangers, a retired author named Dwight McCarter, believes the prints did belong to Dennis as well as the tracks weren't part of any group and they weren't part of none of the Boy Scouts that were searching. And the fact that one of them was barefoot. Remember, I said one of the criteria is that they're very often missing clothing uh, and that they're found in or near water. Well, these footprints lead to a stream. He's barefoot, one foot, and then it disappears. But the stream, this was like a little bubbling creek. It wasn't deep enough for a six-year-old to drown unless someone held his face under the water. There were no signs of any humans. There were no signs of any animals in the area. Now, the Smoky Mountains are known for black bears. Certainly be a possibility that a black bear got Dennis. But if it did, they would see signs. You know, the canines would pick it up. There was no scent ever found by the canines. Now, you can say that the rain washed scent away, but dogs dogs can smell a human scent even after heavy rains. Um, Dennis's father offered a $5,000 reward for information. Uh, they, they actually got psychics involved. A few years later, there was a ginseng hunter who claimed to have found some scattered skeletal remains of a small child a few miles from where the incident took place. But uh, the Park Service went in the area and never found anything. So what happened to Dennis? You know, the theories are, the first is that he just became lost and that he perished from exposure during the night. And according to park officials, this is the most likely scenario. But again, again, Dennis's father was within 50 yards of his son. And as soon as his son, his son maybe had a two-minute head start. There's no way that a six-year-old could get far enough away from a grown man who was sprinting at full speed. There's no way. The uh, second theory that he was attacked by a bear and carried off. Well, okay, but there's been no sign. There's no, there were no bear prints. There was no one saw a bear. Now, speaking of that, someone did actually see something. There was a family that were camped about a mile away from where Dennis uh, disappeared. And 
although they reported their story to the authorities, the authorities never put it in any report, which is kind of odd. But this family, their name was The Keys. Now, when David Polites began his research, he went back. Now, remember, this is in the last, I think this, he probably wrote his first book in about 2017, 2018. So this was still, you know, 30 years after Dennis disappeared. And he did talk to Dennis's father. And, you know, the man is still just racked with grief to this day. But, you know, Dennis's father said, well, you need to talk to this family, the Keys, because they did see something. So they were camped a mile away. They had gone to a place where the park rangers had told them they're likely to see bears. They wanted to see some black bears in the Smoky Mountains. So a park ranger said, well, if you go over here, we know there's been a lot of sightings of bears in that area. So they went over there to look for bears. As they were sitting, just enjoying the view in the afternoon, one of their children said he heard a scream. He said, hey, look over there. So they look on the side of a mountain several hundred yards away. Probably, I think they said it was like a quarter mile away on the side of a mountain. They saw what they thought was a bear initially. It was huge, very tall. It was shaggy, and it looked like it had something slung over its back. But then they noticed this quote-unquote bear was running on its hind legs. It was running on its two feet, and it appeared to run from one tree and hide to the next. And it certainly looked like it had something over his shoulder. So to this day, the story that the Keys told, they, his son called it the Bear Man. We saw a bear man carrying something on the mountain. Is that likely a Bigfoot? We don't know. And that's one thing that Politis, he will not say what he thinks it is. Because if he says, oh, it's aliens or Bigfoot, he's going to lose credibility with the families and they'll never talk to him. So he just presents the evidence and it's up to you, the listener, to make up your own mind. We've got more crazy missing 411 cases when we come right back. Everybody's clarification. I'm your host, James Clary, and that music is appropriate. This is the creepiest stuff. And I mean, some of it's hard to talk about. I mean, you think about these parents that have lost their children or, you know, kids that have lost their mother or father. And there's, you know, there's no resolution. The last case we talked about, they never found that child. His father watched him crouch down behind a shrub playing hide-and-seek. Two minutes later, the child is gone, and there's not a trace of him ever found. And all the theories, human abduction, animal attack, none of them make any sense. So what is it? Well, in the last segment, you know, I'll give you what I think, and I'm also going to... I'm going to play uh, some audio for you that will send chills up your spine. But let's talk about another one of these cases. This is the case of a toddler, a two-year-old named Dior Kuntz. And he disappeared from a campground in Limhigh County, Idaho. Now, this was in the summer of 2015, so this wasn't that long ago. He went camping with his family at Timber Creek Campground in Idaho. And 
the people, the the way that you got into this camp, this campground, was you had to drive about eight miles down a road that really, if you didn't have four-wheel drive, would be very difficult to pass. It was in a valley surrounded by mountains. There was no other way into this campground. And it was a U.S. forest campground. You know, they had one of those little grills there and maybe a picnic table. But there was nothing. I mean, go look at a map of Idaho sometime. It's some of the deepest wilderness in the country. So little Dior, two-year-old, Vernal uh, Vernal Kuntz was with his girlfriend. This is the father of Dior, Jessica Mitchell. And they, the father and... The girlfriend were there with Dior and the grandfather, Dior's, uh, sorry, his great-grandfather, Robert Walton, and a friend named Isaac Reinwad, who had never met Dior or his parents before. So they drove to the campground and they were just relaxing when the father and mother decided to go fishing. So they asked Dior if he wanted to come, and he was playing with sticks at the campground, and he said, no, I'll stay here. So the parents walked down to the stream, which was 100 yards or so uh, away, and it was down a little hill, so you really couldn't see the stream from the campground. And they asked Dior's great-grandfather to watch him, which he agreed to do. So at some point, the great-grandfather got distracted and lost sight of Dior. So when the parents came back from fishing, they said, where's Dior? And the great-grandfather said, well, I thought he went down to fish with you because I looked up and he wasn't there. So I just assumed that he went with you, but he hadn't. So immediately, they all ran to the edges of this campground. And kind of like the last story we talked about, they're in a clearing, but it's surrounded, not just by force. This particular campground had granite, sheer cliffs and mountains around that no way a little boy could climb. So they called 911 at about 2.30 p.m., And they told the dispatcher their son was last seen wearing a camouflage jacket, blue pajama pants, and cowboy boots. Immediately, the authorities had a search party, and they combed the campground for the next two weeks. And they found nothing. Once again, the canines. Now, there wasn't a deluge of rain in this instance, but the canines could find no scent. How's that possible? They could find no sin at all. They had no, they had ATVs, they had helicopters, they had teams on horses. This was one of the largest searches in the history of Idaho. They had drones, canine units, and they never found a trace of Dior. Now, the parents and others have called in uh, private investigators. So the parents were you know, obviously frantic about what happened to their kids. And, you know, law enforcement immediately, what are they going to do? They're going to look at the four adults who were there. And remember, they were Dior's father, his girlfriend, who's now his wife, by the way, the great-grandfather and his great-grandfather's friend. And the friend, I would say, was a man who was, he was on disability. He was a little mentally challenged. All four of those adults were given polygraphs multiple times, and they all passed. Um, And even if one of them 
had had something to do with Dior's disappearance, like, I don't know, maybe a sexual assault murder situation, one of the other ones would have seen or heard something. But they didn't. They all passed polygraphs of flying colors. To this day, they've, uh, they did, I saw an interview that they did like two years ago. They're still crushed. You know, there's no concrete evidence. There's no evidence at all that a crime was committed. Now, some of the papers that I've read about this say that the parents changed their accounts of what happened that day, leading to a little speculation, but they were hiding something. But the truth is, there's no evidence that Dior's parents were involved in this. I mean, the sheriff says mom and dad are being less than truthful. You know, I I think, and actually, I think I heard uh, one of the parents had said that they may have had some marijuana with them and that they didn't tell that. So it showed some deceit in their polygraph, but never any deceit about the specific questions. Did you have anything to do with Dior's death? Now, because of that little deceit, they were named as suspects. Private investigators looked into it and eventually... The parents were completely cleared because there is no evidence. This boy disappeared into from nowhere, into nothing. It's just, it's so bizarre. That was a statement that uh, the father released in 2017. He said, All evidence leads to the death of Dior. We do not believe a kidnapping or animal attack occurred, and all evidence supports this finding. So they don't believe a kidnapping occurred. They don't believe it was an animal attack. What the heck is it? How does a two-year-old... Now think about it. For those of you that have little kids, two-year-olds don't travel very fast. These search parties were massive they would have found something to this day it remains unsolved no arrests have been made uh they like i said the sheriff doesn't think it was an abduction it couldn't have been an abduction unless some weirdo was hiding out in the remote idaho forest and had skills like a uh ninja and snuck up and was able to carry this boy off with no tracks no sounds nothing it's it's just bizarre. And all these cases are bizarre. And you need to buy, I recommend highly you buy Pilatus' books. Just, just Google Missing 411. He's also done two documentary films. Uh, I think they're available on Prime. And the films are okay. The books are exceptional. There's also a million interviews he's done, David Politis, that you can see on Coast to Coast and others. We're going to talk about two of the strangest cases when we come back. It's Clarification. Hey, everybody. It's Clarification. It's James Clare. We're talking about Missing 411, these incredibly bizarre missing person cases that all meet certain criteria. I did want to tell you about one where they found the person. Now, some of them are found alive. In this case, unfortunately, they found this child uh, dead. But this was a, a boy named David Scott, and he had been playing outside with his siblings 
and the family had been watching him play from their trailer. They came outside, and he was gone. I mean, like these other cases, just disappeared. Everyone frantically ran around the property trying to find him. Eventually, they called in the sheriff. Eventually, the Marines came in. I mean, they had thousands of people searching for this little boy, David Scott. And they never, uh, they didn't find him until eventually some Marines were searching. They had gone up a mountain that was 3,000 feet, and then they'd gone down and they'd crossed two other mountains. They roughly 12 miles from the point where he disappeared and they found his body. David was wearing only his diaper. His shirt, pants, shoes were all gone. He was laying face down in, in some water. Again, always found in or near water. He had crossed 12 miles in 20 hours. Now, I'm sure you guys know, uh, Sarah, what's the uh, Lee Stroud, right? The survival guy. Bear, well, Bear Grylls is one of them, and I think it's Lee Stroud is the guy's name that does the Survivor show. He he actually went to the site to test and see if he could hike this twelve miles in twenty hours. He couldn't do it. He's a full grown man who is a survivalist who was in the special forces, he was not able to hike this 12 miles in the 20 hours. But apparently this little boy did, wearing nothing but a diaper. No, it's impossible. So, I mean, that tells us one thing, that the apparently these people are somehow moved by some force. Now, again, I want to repeat, no, if you're out there going, oh, it's some guy took him, it's an abduction. No, there's never any evidence that another human was involved. In many of these cases, it's at, they're absolutely certain there's no way that a human could have gotten to where they found this. Like it's, some of them are only uh, accessible by like a helicopter. It's just, it's just, it stretches the credulity to think that a human was involved. None of the investigators believe that a human was involved. So I want to go over before we wrap up, because this is our last segment. There are two, two cases that to me are just as strange as the ones that I just told you about, Dior Koontz and David Scott and the others. These are even stranger. And one of them is a case of a guy named Henry McCabe. And in a couple of minutes, we're going to play you some audio. But McCabe was a well-known, well-liked, hardworking man. In 2015, he was a state auditor in Minnesota. So on Labor Day of that year, he went out to a club with some of his buddies, but he never returned. What his friends reported that McCabe was pretty intoxicated and that he had asked to be dropped off at a convenience store, which was just a few blocks from his house, and that he was going to walk home from there. Now, whether he wanted to get some more or something to drink, we don't know. But he asked, he insisted 
that he'd be dropped off at the convenience store. And his friends are trying, no, let us take you home. And he's like, no, I want to get up there. I'm going to walk home. So they acquiesced and they dropped him off. But he never, he never showed up after that. Um, so McCabe actually called his wife. And let's play this and then I'll tell you what happened after that sarah's got the audio keyed up this is a recording that his wife made of mccabe oh my gosh sarah what do you think (laughs) kind of sounds like a dinosaur almost. It, well it does you know the other thing it sounds like is that predator remember the movie predator oh, yeah it sounds like that and now what you can't hear and this is another odd thing about this particular case uh you used to be able to find the complete audio recordings of this you notice that recording had music behind us because the only clip I could find was a YouTube video that had pieces of the audio. The whole audio used to be available, but it's been scrubbed from the Internet. Now, you have to ask yourself, why is it scrubbed from the Internet? Why does the Park Service refuse to give any information on these missing people? Why do investigators and coroners say they're not going to talk about these cases? There's something going on, folks. I mean, I have no idea what it is. We can all speculate. But there is something very, very strange happening. So now McCabe, uh, let me see, McCabe was found. Now, this is one of the strangest things about it. Guess where his body was found? It was found in a small pond by two kayakers, right? But he'd been missing for months. The coroner reported that the decomp, the decomposition of his body was only days old. So he had been alive somewhere for weeks and weeks. They find his body and the, the, they ruled his death was due to drowning. They find his body in a pond, but there was no decomposition or very little. Yeah. Well, and decomposition typically occurs faster whenever your body is left in, in water. water. Yeah, I know. It's so, so where was he all this time? So how did they deem him a, a drowning or an accidental drowning? Did they find water yeah, in his water lungs? Yeah, water in his lungs. Hmm. Water in his lungs. But... Where was he those six weeks? Yeah. I mean, was he kept That's chained up somewhere? Yeah, it's just, it is so bizarre. And to this day, they don't know what happened to him. I mean, the recordings, they'll play those one more time, Sarah. You, so knowing what you do, what you know now, you the listener, listen to these recordings again. It's just too bizarre. Listen. <laughs> I mean, that is just so weird. Now, when I first uncovered this case, myself was probably, I don't know, 
eight, nine years ago. I remember listening to the whole audio tape, and at the end of the tape, you can hear McCabe say, stop it, which is not on this tape. I could not find, once again, the whole audio tape, which in itself is strange. What are they, they being the powers that be, covering up? I mean, you know, it could be some alien type thing. Uh, It could be Bigfoot. I don't know. Shoot us a text. We'd love to hear what we'd love to hear what your theories are. Uh, You know, the one case of that kid that they saw the bear man carrying a kid that that likely sounds if you believe their story. And David Polite has found those people to be very credible. That's the Keys family that saw that bear thing. You know, carrying something across the mountain. Now, we've only got a couple minutes left. I've got to tell you real quickly about this last story. This isn't about a disappearance, but it's about something that might explain these disappearances. A lady named Jan Maccabee was hunting. She and her husband, uh, Bruce Maccabee, had some land, and she was an avid bow hunter, and they had a tree stand. Now, Bruce Maccabee was a noted optical physicist. He's very noted, and he's also uh, noted in the UAP UFO field because he has analyzed many of the videos and recordings of supposed UFOs, and he's debunked a lot of them as hoaxes. The guy is very well respected. So anyway, Jan sitting in this tree this tree stand and it's just a normal day and she's you know she can hear the birds and the crickets and she said all of a sudden the forest went quiet and she said that all the the animal noises and the insect noises just stopped she thought a coyote or black panther or some other predator had come in the forest which when a predator comes in everything will stop making noise but then she looks in a tree across and she sees something she likened it to a shape about the size of a large man but she said it was like looking through saran wrap do you know what a mirage think of a mirage on a hot day when you're looking down the road and you see that hazy kind of transparent stuff she said that's what it looked like like in, And she saw the tree limbs bending as this thing moved through the trees. She saw the leaves disturbed and the tree limbs bending. There was something there, but it was mostly invisible. She jumps down. And by the way, she took pictures. And Sarah and I are going to put some links. You can actually look at these pictures. And I got to wrap this up because we're almost out of time. But anyway, the Maccabees later on, their son comes home. They're at dinner that same night. And he said the weirdest thing happened. We were at band practice. Now, Jan could actually hear the band playing at the high school from her tree stand. He said, wow, we all saw a UFO right above us. And everybody at the high school saw it. So that's been confirmed. Does it have any relation to this weird thing she saw? We don't know. So her husband looked at these pictures and he did an analysis of them. And it's just, you're going to have to look at this link. But the pictures were of a different pixel size than were possible with this camera. And it's just this weird looking crazy thing. You can't make out what it is. But Maccabee's point, the doctor, the physicist said, it's just not possible for this camera to take these pictures. So we don't know what she saw. You know, to wrap this up, 
That is the bottom line. We don't know what this stuff is, but what it does tell us, there are so many things out there that, that we don't know. And it's a huge, mysterious wild world. And that's why I love it and why I love doing this show. It's James Clary. Clarification. We will see you next week.